NCAA tournament headquarters. <laughs> yeah. You go ahead and reserve your spot. Go get your hotel room. Get your flights. The Washington Huskies are going to the NCAA tournament. I wish I wish you were the judge and jury on that deal. I am. That's news to me, but okay. 15-2. and two. They got it done against Oregon State. I have a request that they not play Oregon State in the Pac-12 tournament. I'm done with Oregon State. I've seen enough of Oregon State. I'm telling you right now, I even took a look when I got home late on whatever it was, Wednesday night, last night, whatever you want to call it, and uh, 15-2, and they can lose their last two, and they'll not only be in the NCAA tournament, they will not play, I'm telling you right now, they will not play uh, the opening round or the the play-in games in Dayton, Ohio. They're in. They're in the field. The first four. The first mm-hmm. four, right. They, will, they mm-hmm. will make the field regardless of the outcome of their last two games. You heard it here first. Not that we're going to need to know whether I'm right or wrong because they're not going to lose their last two. But uh, I think 15-3 and three does it in this year of the soft bubble. Congratulations. You, my friend, are going to, di- to, to the NCAA tournament. <laughs> Well, I'll be I'll be very very happy come Selection Sunday uh, when the University of Washington's name is called. It has been a long long time coming, and and proud of these these seniors who have uh, who've been through a bit of a, a rocky road to get there. Think about this, Mitch. When these seniors were two and sixteen, and and have a chance uh, with their last game of the regular season against Oregon to potentially be sixteen and two. So you know you just mirror images of uh, of the records and. Um, yeah, like, geez, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be awesome, um, to be back. Yeah. All sure. right. So, uh, here's the game plan for episode number 28. We're rolling. We're, mm. we're starting. Mm. This is the tease. Okay. What I'd like right. to do is when we get into the first segment, we got to decide who we're naming the, the episode after. And we got a lot of little topics that are fun, but little, and I don't want to spend too much. What I'd like to do is do a little bit on the Huskies like we just did. And then maybe we'll do a little bit more and we'll make that available to the patrons. So, it's episode number 28. Did I say 27? Episode number 28. Uh, Apple iTunes and Spotify. Are you still listening on Apple iTunes in the car? How do you listen to the show? I do, yes. I do. Uh, iTunes. iTunes on my phone, typically. Okay. Do you listen typically the, the morning it comes out in the car, like on the way uh west to your offices or what do you when do what's your what's your rhythm what's your routine listening to the show no it's it's usually it's usually late afternoon um in part because like we're recording now it's it's late at night so i i I need a chance to to digest it you know a few hours i don't need to to listen to it immediately although i know a lot of people that's their morning routine they want to get it fresh hot off the presses at 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 7 a.m. I like to look, listen to it around 4 p.m. I see. And do you, ever, yeah. do you ever listen back to it and say, why did he take that out? Or did he did, – did, did I don't remember saying that, or I don't remember him saying that. You ever have that kind of reaction, or does it always sound to you the way it sounded to you in your ears when we were recording it? Oh, no, there's definitely different things that I pick up on that I didn't realize either you said or I said or you didn't hear that I said something or vice versa or – you edit it to make me seem wrong. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's uh, okay. 
Uh, Two guests on episode 28. Jason Lockenfour returns to the fold. He has a lot of good, fun stuff. Inside scoop from the Combines, and a lot of it on the the Seattle Seahawks, by the way. Uh, Discussions of uh, an Antonio Brown trade. Seahawks discussed it internally. Where's Le'Veon Bell going? How is the world of sports gambling, Jason, connected directly to the extension that the Seahawks would like to do with Russell Wilson? He's going to explain the connection between gambling and Russell Wilson. And it seems pretty clear to Jason Lock and Four who's going to be the number one pick in the NFL draft. Also, USA Today and Golf Week writer Steve DeMeglio, Tiger's neck injury, the cooch fallout. And here's a topic that you'll love with uh, Steve DeMeglio, Jason. Is a major championship coming back to mm. Chambers Bay now that they've redone the greens? DeMeglio has a very – he covers the tour every week he leaves – he leaves his home and he goes every week on tour wherever they go. That was the coolest job. I think I don't think I can think of a more a cooler job than traveling around at every event on the PGA Tour. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. Uh, he's on Mitch Unfiltered from the Arnold Palmer Classic in Orlando, and has some definitive words about whether he thinks Chambers Bay will ever see another major championship. Good extra content available to patrons on the Patreon site. Uh, we'll have an extra uh, Patreon episode where we expand upon the Huskies' win over Oregon State and what, what their position now is with the NCAA tournament and the Pac-12 tournament, of course. Uh, make sure that you uh, like or follow the brand-new Mitch Unfiltered Facebook page. We're still only at about 650 or 700 followers or likers or whatever you call it. I'd like to see that number. <laughs> Stop it. I'd like to see that number uh, reach 1,000. Uh, This episode 28, before we name it, is brought to you in part by Daniel's Broiler and their four incredible locations, Leshy Marina, South Lake Union, Bellevue Place, and the new downtown Seattle spot in the Hyatt Regency, 8th and Howell, Tuesday night, March 19th. Don't forget the big dinner. I'm sure hoping that we're going to have Jay Ham there and he doesn't have to go to the NCAA tournament too early. Uh, I might have to drive him to the NCAA tournament after (laughs) The dinner is over. Evergreen Golf Call, the premier wealth manager of the Northwest, over $2 billion in assets managed, four offices in the West Coast, pillars of the Northwest community, proud sponsors of the Bellevue Boys and Girls Club, Zeke's Pizza. Please remember, Zeke's Pizza delivers nothing better than watching sports on TV and munching on Zeke's Pizza with some of their craft beer, too. Stop by the brand-new Tacoma location. Watch the dogs with me in the tournament because I'm telling you, it's a lock on the UW Tacoma campus. I'm ready. Are you ready? Here comes episode number 28. Unfiltered. It's okay to have a game plan going in, but when you're so stubborn and unwilling to get away from it because the other team is essentially daring you to do so, then we get into stupidity. Unfiltered. Guess that's what really kind of infuriates me that we go to the offseason after a game that the quarterback was really not given a chance to win the football game for you. That's a quarterback who's the face of the organization. That's a quarterback who, as I say, in a couple of years or in a year, they're going to give, I don't know, $25, $30 million a year to. And yet it just feels to me like they took the ball out of his hands. Mitch is unfiltered.
I'm looking across the table. No Jason Hamilton. He's at home. He's had a long day. You you left your home at what time this morning, Jay? Uh, 6.30 a.m. And here we are recording episode 28. The commitment, the passion, the drive, the excellence of Jay Ham at 11 o'clock at night recording episode 28. So, yes. I want... I want you to, speaking of when you listen to these episodes back, uh, uh, this particular little intro right here, as you just described me, I want you to think about how similar you just sounded to Bill Walton. Oh, my God. Please tell me no. Tell me that that, that, was, that assessment is the same, has the same accuracy of your assessment that I'm not a good texter, which has been shot down by all, all concerned on Twitter. You just went we, sheepishly we, to the exits from that one. We we should we should do a bonus Patreon episode just about that whole text messaging thing. Just I, that. I, I'm That's in. the only topic. I'm in. Okay. I'm in. But yes. that uh that Bill Walden esque commitment, passion. Drive commitment <laughs> passion. <laughs> Conference champion. Oh my god. Anyway. Anyway, that was you. You know, I went back and I, I watched a little of the NBA Finals in 1996, and mm-hmm. I swear that was Bill Walton on the call on NBC. Is that possible that it was Bill Walton and Marv Albert on the call on NBC for the 1996 NBA Finals? Was Steve Snapper Jones a part of that broadcast? <laughs> you just wanted to say Steve Snapper Jones. <laughs> <laughs> All right, all right. Let's get to a couple of matters because I don't want to hold you too long. You've had a long day, and you've uh, and you've shared with us enough of your time. So I wanna I wanna move along. I wanna have fun, but I wanna move along. And I'd like okay. to I'd like to save a little of the of the husky talk for the patrons. Uh, but let's start by naming the episode. I'm gonna throw at you that number 28 again. A bad one. Just a bad one. A bad number in sports. I don't know. We're in a bad spot. We're in a bad little stretch right now of numbers. Um, Let's start with the Sonics. I'm going to ask you again what I asked you a couple of episodes ago. How many Sonics do you think in the history of the organization wore number 28? (laughs) Based on the fact you're asking, I'm saying zero. Well, I can't find one. So if there's somebody out there listening who would like to dig and be a producer, because we need producers on Mitch Un- Unfiltered, I have not found one shred of evidence of anybody wearing number 28 for okay. the Sonics in the history of the organization. Okay. So they're out. Um, let's go to the Mariners. Uh, Henry Cotto. Oh, yeah. Uh, jo- Joey, little Joey Cora taking pictures on the dugout in 1995 with his pin i can picture his the brim of his the uh the uh, crown of his hat straight up with some mm-hmm. like little pins on it i think he had a little pin on uh, the crown of his hat uh, was he crying yes he was <laughs> he was <Okay. laughs> crying <laughs> oh dear and the best mariner to everywhere 28 raul abanez but are we naming the episode after Raul Abanez. No, but he also had like how many different numbers, but that's fine. You're yeah, right. Yeah. Mostly no, that's 20. Not, yeah. No, it's not happening. That's not, that's not going to happen. No, not happening. All right. So I already know who, I already know who this episode is. It's a contemporary of mine, a classmate of mine, but we're just going to keep going. Really? A classmate of yours. Oh, yes. oh, oh, yes. One of the guys that had the guts 
and the fortitude to stay with his initial decision. Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, if, my, if my decision was to leave early to go to the uh, NBA, then yeah, sure. Nice try. Uh, <laughs> nice try. There is a clear Twitter public sentiment for episode 28. You As know- a person who grew up here and, and watched him, I totally understand why. Uh, I have a real problem with that number 28. Uh, the great, yes, you do. The greatest Seahawk running back that ever wore 28, anyway, uh, was Kurt Warner, the number three overall pick in the draft out of Penn State. Uh, his career was clearly cut short in his production by serious knee injuries. Uh, the life that he's lived since retiring is probably as incredible and as impressive as his life as an NFL football player. If you haven't read the book, that uh, Dave Bowling did with Kurt Warner. You have to about raising two kids with autism. Third leading rusher in Seahawks history, 6,705 yards. He scored 55 touchdowns, but that's just a drop in what would have been an incredible bucket had he stayed healthy. And, of course, he was part of the team that, as a kid, broke my little heart. Mm -hmm. He came to the Orange Bowl as, I want to say, 15-point underdog. Somebody has to check me on that. And they left with an improbable upset victory over my beloved Finns to take them to the AFC Championship game. Kurt Warner, many are going to be disappointed that Kurt Warner doesn't get the episode name because I don't think he is because Mm -hmm. there's just others that had so much better a career than Kurt Warner. And we, we want to give a little lift to Kurt because he's a Northwest guy, but Jason, how much can we, how much can we propel him just because he played for the Seattle Seahawks? Well, it's kind of tie goes to the runner, right? If it was, if it was equal and he's the Northwest guy, you give him the nod. Right. Right. But in this case, at least I need to hear the other names you're going to throw out. Like I've already told you who I think it should be. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, without telling you who I think it should be, yeah. it's that that's not a close contest. All right, I'll throw a couple more names at you. Let me give you one more Pacific Northwest Roots guy that you may okay. not be, you may not be thinking of. Okay, he was a great running back for the University of Washington. He also happens to be the father oh, of, yeah, of, one of, the, of one of the great athletes in the University of Washington. Nice Eastern. poll. That's a good poll, Jacques. Robinson wore 28. Um, you want to know how bad 28 is in NBA circles? Oh, God. I can't even think of an NBA player that, I, that comes off the top of my head that I can think of wore 28. You think Ashton Kutcher was bad a couple of segments, a couple of episodes ago? Uh, a- Kyle Korver. A- Ashton Kutcher. Oh, God, Kyle Korver. <laughs> Okay, yeah. Okay, who you got? Who, who's, in the, the best who's in the fray? I, best I can do is Andrew Lang. <laughs> no way. Best I can oh do is Andrew gosh. Lang. I'm sorry. I can give you Aaron Aflalo if you want him. No, I'm going to pass on Aaron Aflalo. And then you get to Major League Baseball where there are some really good ones, including a couple of active guys. Okay, who do you got? Bert... Be home, Bly Levin. <laughs> yeah. Minnesota Twins. 287 victories, 3,701 strikeouts, nearly 5,000 innings pitched, and a trip to the Hall of Fame. There's one. And then two 
guys that are in their primes right now that in about 10 years we might consider if we're still doing we're still doing the podcast and we revert back to the to the lower numbers um nolan arenado just signed a huge contract he's 27 years old he wears number 28 he's got 186 home runs in six seasons for the colorado rockies in his last four years listen to this jason 42, 41, 37, 38 in his last four years. In Colorado, though. I mean, I'd be curious to know how many of those home runs are at Coors versus on the road. But, yeah, yeah okay, those are big numbers. Big numbers. Uh, yep. A two ninety one batting average and a very, very wealthy young man. Uh, he, worked, mm-hmm. he wears 28. And then the other 28 in Major League Baseball, a guy that stole one from Felix – but now has two Cy Youngs. If I told you there's a guy that's pitching that's got not only two Cy Youngs, but he's been in the top four in the American League Cy Young balloting four of the last five years, at least in the top four, if not a winner. Corey Kluber. Oh, yeah. Of the Cleveland Indians. Indians, yeah. So he wears two. Mm-hmm. But, okay. But I don't think anybody's going to steal it from your guy. The best four players in NFL history to wear 28 are not necessarily in this order. Curtis Martin. Yep. Five, good, good player. Five-time good pro player. bowler, two-time first-team all-pro, Hall of Famer, 14,000 yards. In fact, um, I'm going to just – yep. Mar, um, Curtis Martin had more yards rushing than your than your choice for episode yep. number 28. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, Yale Larry, Yale Larry was a Detroit Lions um, defensive back for many years before our time, Hall of Famer, and Daryl Green wore twenty eight as a corner. All right for the Washington Redskins. Uh, I'll come back to him, and then there's Marshall, Marshall, Marshall. Mm-hmm. You went to school with him. I did down at San Diego State. Good student. Down at- a good student. <laughs> I'm asking. <laughs> was he a good student? I, I can't even tell you. Uh, you know, this is a whole separate conversation. The difference between the Marshall Falk in college and the polished professional Hall of Fame player that, you know, he is now as an adult man. Marshall Falk was a piece of work on the campus of San Diego State. Wow. Oh, really? he, was, he was something else. Straight New Orleans. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, 12 seasons, 12,279 yards. The most impressive number, 767 receptions. Mm-hmm. That's amazing for a running back. 6,874 receiving yards for a grand total of over 19,000 yards from scrimmage and 136 total touchdowns. Now, I will say this, even though I'm not going to try to convince you. I was surprised when I looked at Daryl Green's numbers versus Marshall Falk's numbers. Marshall Falk is a three-time first-team All-Pro. To me, that's the biggest honor. If you said, Mitch, yeah, what's the biggest honor in the NFL? What's the litmus test? What's the scale? I would say if I could only have one thing, because it's hard to compare people at different positions, corners to running backs, quarterbacks to linebackers. How do you do it? 
You can't do mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. The way I would do it is all t- all first team, all pro first team. Marshall Falk, three-time first team all pro. Daryl Green, four-time first team all pro. Hmm. Marshall, okay. Marshall Falk, seven pro bowls. Daryl Green, seven pro bowls. Marshall Falk, one Super Bowl ring. Daryl Green, two Super Bowl rings. I think it's a lot closer, Daryl Green to defensive backs, as both are Hall of Famers, as mm-hmm. Marshall Falk, but I think you're going to tell me all of those things considered from local yokels all the way through baseball players and Berkeley be home by 11, you want Marshall Falk as the name of this episode. So, funny that you should say that Daryl Green – Growing up was one of my favorite football players. Oh, okay. Just you know, you remember all the competitions. Was he the fastest man in the yeah. NFL? He was. He was the fastest yeah. man in the NFL. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, all, all that stuff that w- that went around um, in the '80s with with competitions in the summertime and you know all that stuff with with Daryl Green. I, I'm a I'm a big Daryl Green fan. So you could you could make an argument and convince me that this should be episode Daryl Green, and I would completely disagree with you. Okay, so it's Marshall. It's episode Marshall, Marshall, Marshall. Episode Marshall, Marshall Falk. Falk. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. We don't even have to wait to the end to name it to crown it after yep. the after the story of the episode, the storytelling time in the episode. All right. Um, give me give me three good pearls from Washington's win on Wednesday night over Oregon State to win the 15th game out of 17 of their Pac-12 schedule. I've said it. I said it in the tease. I'm saying it again. The Washington Huskies are now in the tournament, and they will not play in the first four, and they can lose their last two and still be in the tournament and not play in the first four. That's after exploring some of the bubble teams and resumes. I don't think there's any question about it. They are a lead pipe lock to be in the NCAA tournament in my in my eyes. Uh, mm-hmm. Give me a thought or two on their performance. You had Dickerson with a whole ton of rebounds and some good scoring. Uh, Matisse Theibel was again good on the defensive end, although I don't think he got credit for a couple of steals and a couple of blocks. Um, it went down to the wire, a terrible o- Oregon State possession at the end of regulation. Still all almost ended up in like a 30-footer from Stevie Thompson who I think Washington has had enough of. Yeah. Um, give, me a, give me a couple thoughts, a couple of J-Ham thoughts. Yeah, I thought that, you know, Washington did not play great defensively again. Um, uh, you know, giving up uh, 76, obviously that part of that is in OT, but, you know, their whole thing is to keep teams, you know, under 70, um, to give up eight threes and uh, a bunch of paint points. Oregon State is just a very difficult matchup for them. So let, let's just – understand that when you have a couple of guards in the top and the Thompson brothers and then Trace Tingle who just went bananas with 31 and 10 um, they they're Oregon State's just a tough matchup but I thought what was what was impressive is you know in overtime and down the stretch their defense that when they needed stops when when uh, shot clocks were winding down they forced Oregon State into tough tough shots and then they finished it with a rebound so you, you get scoring across the board 22 and 17 from Noah 22 from David Chris who was good early um, you know Jalen Noel with 18 
free throws were a little less desirable than I'd like to see, but ultimately Washington is getting everybody's best shot. It's a long season and it's a grind and they were able to pull this one out. So to be 15 and two, to have one game left, um, you know, I think if I would have told everybody, uh, Washington will be 15 and two headed into the last game, everybody would be clamoring to snatch that up. So it's it's they're in, a, in prime position to to go to the NCAA tournament, and they just they just need to finish strong. Let's do more on the patron episode on the University of Washington. Uh, for everybody who's a patron and anybody who's not a patron, you can join us by going to MitchUnfiltered.com and click on Become a Patron, and you'll have access to all the bonus content, including an expanded conversation of where the Huskies are, their win over Oregon State, their final game of the year against Oregon. We'll do that. Uh, on the patron episode. Okay, let me just touch on a few things with the bell here before we uh, we call upon our two guests, and then we'll come back for the last segment, Jason, with a little story and some some emails. A lot, not emails, I should say, tweets. We'll come back with some tweets or some interesting tweets. Some of them directed right to you, so I'd like to read them to you. Um, real quickly, let's touch on a couple of these topics that I think people are interested in. Frank Clark got his franchise tag since the last time we were together. Grateful. Yes, and I want to talk about that. You probably saw my tweet. He, I did. He uh, he gets franchise tagged. He goes from he goes from nine hundred ninety thousand overnight to seventeen point one million. What a country! Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved his reaction. And I know that he's kind of a polarizing figure. I know that he made some mistakes as a young man at school that cost him his career at the University of Michigan. I know there's a lot of people that really can't tolerate Frank Clark, so I am sensitive to that. But I'd like to say this, that he seems to have been a really good citizen since he's gotten here to the Northwest. And his reaction in particular to being franchised, I really took note of, and I want to just mention it to you, get your thoughts. You know, in the last several years, this franchise tag, which you or me would consider you or I would consider an unbelievable compliment to be able to get that kind of a raise in the average of the top, whatever it is at the, at the position has become kind of a, a negative for a lot of guys. They get franchised and they're like surly and upset. They didn't get a long-term deal. I'm not working on a one-year deal. I didn't get my, my, my signing bonus. And what is the first thing that most fans of a team do after they hear a guy got franchised on their favorite team? What is the first concern of a typical NFL fan if one of his favorite players gets franchised? Hold out. The first thing that I think of when a great player gets franchised on my team, not that my team has anybody that's worthy of franchise, but um, the first thing I think of is, oh, he's going to hold out. He's going to hold out because he didn't get the long-term deal. Mm-hmm. Instead, Frank Clark is out there tweeting how blessed he is, how excited he is, how appreciative he is. He can't wait to go to work, to get ready to go to work. He's being congratulated on Twitter by Russell Wilson. He's thanking Russell Wilson. I mean, the polar opposite of a guy who would be mad that he didn't get his long-term deal. Just the fact that he got the raise to $17.1 million and the franchise tag he was like honored to do so, and I was—I I took particular note of that. Yeah, no, you're—you're you're right. I mean, I, he did, 
and he was out there saying, you know, jump on board, we're ready to do this. And you're right. I guess for a guy that probably wanted a longer term deal, like most players do, they want the security. Uh, it is sort of refreshing <laughs> to see somebody understand that you, you just got a tremendous opportunity and a, and a life-changing amount of money in one year. LeBron James, let me ring the bell. LeBron James passed Michael on Wednesday night. Fourth all-time NBA scores. Can you name the three mm-hmm. that are? Can you name the three that are ahead of him? Jabbar. Yep. Uh, and that's all I got at the top of my head. Really? How about the mailman? Yeah, Carl Malone. I can't. I just. I can't remember the who 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 was putting up that many points. To be honest with you. How about uh, some guy named Kobe? Shoby's that high, is he? Yep. Jabbar, mm. mailman, Kobe, LeBron, Michael. Dare I ask you, as a NBA supporter, as a guy who loved the NBA as a kid and still does, as a basketball player and star at Hazen High, as a San Diego (laughs) State Aztec who shared chemistry class with Marshall, 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 and as a three-year starter at the University of Washington who still holds the single-game steal record, can I ask you, is it even worthy of a conversation, LeBron versus Michael? Oh, it's certainly worthy of a conversation. Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly worthy of a conversation because the 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 debate is the debate is legitimate. It's it's not legitimate in my mind. I mean, I'm, I'm a Michael guy, but I, I certainly think for the people who are LeBron people, um, when you think about his size and what he's done, the points and rebounds and assists, and the way he's altered the game. Um, not to mention the several championships, but the finals, the finals appearances. Uh, yeah, he's certainly in a conversation to be the goat. There's no, there's no doubt about it. He's just not for me. He's not the goat for me. Why? Because he's not for me either. And I wonder whether it's because during our youth, we had Michael who changed the game, and so we have this this default setting that we'll we'll never allow anybody to top. Our number twenty three from the nineteen eighties. Yeah. It it could it could be that, and I think too, if you were a fan of the NBA during those years, and you saw Michael Jordan burst onto the scene, and you know the marketing around him, and the whole Nike deal, and all that stuff. Not to mention, I mean, you know, as a freshman hitting the game winner in the national championship uh, for for North Carolina, um, you know, he 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 put himself on the map, and then. And then burst onto the scene in the NBA with the with the Nike deal, but more than that, uh, the NBA at the time with Detroit and Boston, and him being in Chicago and watching him face those guys in the playoff rounds and absolutely get his brains beat in and still put up huge numbers and trying to will Chicago to get past these guys that were dynasty teams in Boston and Detroit. And then see him finally break through and persevere and beat the Pistons. And it was like this story arc that you just watched a guy rise from the ashes and then just, you just witnessed his greatness. And then once he got there, he just would not relinquish the throne. And his perseverance and competitive nature was like nothing I've ever seen other than Tiger Woods in his prime. Okay. You've That's got how you've, I feel. you've got me. I mean, that was beautifully said, by the way. Gosh, oh, I, I won't have to edit that at all. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I suppose the opponent might say to you, but wait a second, uh, Jayham, I could paint you this picture of LeBron bringing a championship to the Cleveland Cavaliers after leaving them the first time and coming back and bringing an yeah. NBA title. And maybe he could do it. I can't as do it as eloquently as you just did it, but maybe somebody else could. I just, I always wonder, because no one will ever top Michael for me, but I wonder if it's just we're not allowing ourselves. We're just not open. We're stubborn. And it's subconsciously we're stubborn. It's not like we're, we're, we've decided we're stubborn. Just somewhere in our wiring as, as people who grew up in the 70s, 80s, Mm-hmm. and saw Michael at North Carolina and saw him win dunk contests and saw him do everything that we had never seen before, whether we've just subconsciously decided, nope, doesn't matter what anybody else does, LeBron or anybody else, we're not going yeah. there. We're just not going there. And we will find a way to eloquently tell the story of Michael Jordan just the way you did, just to defend his honor because we're not going to allow ourselves to even consider somebody else that's better. That is certainly possible uh, i wouldn't i i, I can't, couldn't even tell you that i i could defend that in a way that it's not a possibility but i will say that some of it is just personality um and it's not about the the actual performance on the floor while of course you have to factor that in the flare you know the flare the tongue yeah, every- the tongue the tongue coming out right Everything, everything about who Jordan was. The shoes. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he was the original, original. And, and people can go back and say, oh, you're forgetting guys like Oscar Robertson and they, Dr. J, they changed the game. And you, they're not wrong. In that, in that era, in that phase, whether it's, you know, for, for whatever reason, uh, certain players – changed the way the game was played wilt and bill russell and for sure but jordan in a modern era kind of way is the game he is the game and if if you could (laughs) not to be really wax poetic here but if you could rebrand the league jordan's the logo yeah. Jordan's Jordan's the logo. Yeah. Not not Jerry West. Yeah. Jordan is the logo. Yeah, yeah. And so for that for that reason to me, if I would say Jordan's the logo, he is the goat. Okay. I'm with you. I just I, I just wonder how much of it is in our wiring that we just can't allow ourselves for to sure. consider it. Yeah. Uh, a couple sure. of last things that I know that you'll be interested in, then we'll uh, we'll do the two interviews. And then we'll tell a story, answer some tweets in the last segment. Uh, Real quickly, did you see what John Smoltz did last week? Uh, You know what? To be honest with you, I didn't. I saw something about him in the in the Champions Tour, but I I didn't really didn't really catch it. John Smoltz played in the Champions Tour event, the fifty and over Champions Tour Uh event. He shot even, one over, even in three rounds to finish. Mm -hmm one over for the tournament. Mm-hmm. He beat the following names. Goidos, Roberts, Verplank, and this is just, I'm not, this isn't all of them. I'm just picking some names. Uh, mm-hmm. Roberts, Verplank, Goidos, Mediate, Sutton, Frost, Pavin, Daly, and two-time U.S. Open, Retief Goosen, to name just a few that John Smoltz beat 
over three rounds on the Champions Tour. Unbelievable. I mean, you want to talk about being just an athlete and a competitor, people that can alter their profession and still compete at a high level like that. Good for him. I mean, that's amazing. And then my favorite golf note of the of the week. Jack Nicholas played golf with a guy at the Bears Club in my hometown who had a hole in one. So Jack did a video on his phone uh, of the guy after <laughs> after the guy had a hole in one. He did a video on his phone congratulating him and he sent out the tweet. Yeah. When I tell you who the guy is, you may drop the phone. Uh oh. Just visualize Jack Nicholas in a foursome with scoring his first ever hole in one in his life. Bob Ritchie. Do you know who Bob Ritchie is? I don't. Kid Rock. <laughs> <laughs> Jack and Kid Rock, huh? That's a that's a match that that is a visual pair right there. Oh, the ponytail, the hat, the tattoos. Yeah. And Jack oh. Nicholas playing golf together, and Kid Rock goes out and aces the second hole oh my at goodness. the Bears Club, 175 yards. And Jack tweets out, first hole in one for my friend Bob Ritchie, a.k.a. Kid Rock. Ace number, this is Jack's words, ace number two at the Bears Club, 175 yards. Glad I slipped in some golf before settling in for some Honda Classic action. Bob, the locker room, thanks you. For the free beverages. That's Jack Nicholas to Kid Rock. <laughs> well done. Oh. Well done. Okay. Uh, Jason Lockett Forum with some really juicy NFL stuff, including a lot about your Seahawks. And and Steve DeMeglio, who is a PGA Tour writer for the USA Today and Golf Week, who's going to share with us all the big storylines of the world of golf heading into the Players' Championship next week in Augusta right around the corner. And then, by the way, the story today is going to be courtesy of John Bracken. John Bracken, who gave us a great segment, right? The MJ story playing golf in Seattle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He has asked us to do us a favor, do him a favor, and tell the famous Digger Phelps story. Have you ever heard the Mitch Levy Digger Phelps story? I'm not sure that I have, no. That's the story in our final segment of Mitch Unfiltered. The word is excellence. I know everybody talks about it, but how many people actually practice what they preach? I know Daniels Broiler does. In fact, that's one of the very things that makes Daniels Broiler so appealing to me. Excellence. USDA prime steaks at Daniels Broiler. I love the seasoning and the fact that the steak's flavor is seared into the steak in a broiler that is set at 1,800 degrees. But you know what I love even more? I love the fact that a Daniel's weight person comes up to me every single time I have a steak at Daniel's at any of the locations and asks, have we prepared your steak to your satisfaction? That happens every single time. Every person who orders any Daniel's world-class steaks. Daniels is not only there to serve you, but to serve to your satisfaction. And the goal is excellence every single time. Locally owned by the Schwartz family, located at South Lake Union, Leshy Marina, Bellevue Place, and now at the new downtown Hyatt Regency at 8th and Howell, Daniels Broiler, world class steakhouses. Unfiltered.
It's the Zeke's Pizza Hotline, of course, and our friend, our fan of Zeke's Pizza from afar in Baltimore, straight home now from Indianapolis in the NFL Combine is, of course, Jason Lockenfora. How was Indianapolis this time around? Oh, you know, you've been to Indy once, you've been there a million times. Nothing ever changes in Indianapolis. Uh, the Champs. The Champ Sports Bar was under was closed, and that whole part of the indoor mall was under construction. Other than that, Mitch, it was Indianapolis. So Zeke's is on board. That's awesome. Yeah, of course. Zeke's is always on board. You know, I have a very funny story that you've never heard, but our audience has, of something that happened to us in Indianapolis when I was traveling with my dad. May he rest in peace to the NCAA tournament games every year. We, uh, we went to Indianapolis one year, and... The Boston Celtics were in town the same few days as the NCAA tournament, and Rick Pitino, okay. Rick Pitino was staying. the The team was staying in our hotel, and uh, uh, the story of my father and Rick Pitino. Oh God, Pitino thought my Did he father. Get into it? Well, my father. He thought my father was a lunatic, and they got out, They got on the elevator uh, at the same time after my father uh, asked him a couple questions about his steakhouse in Lexington. And gotcha. and he asked uh, Patino what floor you go into, and Patino refused to tell him the floor. <laughs> <laughs> and he and the, and the two of them went up. He said, "You go, sir, first. You go, sir, first. So he put my father put the floor in, and then he got off on his floor. And then Patino felt like it was safe. He didn't want this lunatic. So he thought your dad was like a stalker. I, I guess. I guess my uh, my lawyer father was a stalker. He had a Syracuse hat on. He was just coming up from working out. And Patino wanted no part of my father knowing the floor where he was staying. I just thought that was very good. That happened in Indianapolis. There anyway, you go. Anyway. We've, well, yeah. Oh, that's, uh, that's a, did you go to the Steak and Shake? No, uh, I don't remember. We went to some place called Elmo's or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's still there. and That's the, the shrimp cocktail and all that. Yeah, <laughs> that's not going anywhere. Jason Lockenfora is with us. So what I like about what you do at the Indianapolis Combine, because I'm just, I don't know, as much as I've tried to become an NFL draft geek, I'm not really. I just can't get into it because I don't know the players very well. I don't know the offensive linemen, and I, yeah. get, I get a little heat under my chair as we get closer to the draft, but you come back yeah. from the Combines with story, with storylines. Give me, give me your top two or three things that you found interesting as you kind of roam the hallways at the Combine in Indianapolis. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, it's really – it's football's version of the winter meetings is really what the Combine is. And, you know, I, come April, I'll be all about the draft, but we've got to get through franchise tags and you've got to get through free agency and there's a lot of business that takes place trades before we even get to the draft and let's face it as much as everybody says best player available best player available they also know that that's their last shot to you know effectively address roster holes and that plays a big part in who's drafted where so yeah i mean for me it was a lot of stuff about nick Foles and the absence of a real nick Foles market which you know i I wrote at the beginning, this guy, keep your $2 million bucks and let them trade you and, and, and stay on that $20 million option, brother. Right. Because when it comes down to Jacksonville and nobody else, you might not get that $20 million. Right. Right. And this idea that he had to be a free agent, to go where? To go where? Other than Jacksonville, to go where? Nobody. Miami doesn't want to pay you $20 million. Right. Miami, I don't know. They might play without a quarterback this year. <laughs> I mean, you know, what? Washington, where they're paying Alex Smith $54 million and never play football again? They're going to pay you 20 or 25 That's not happening. Where are you going? 
Denver traded for broken down Joe Flacco. Where are you going, Nick Foles, and at what price point? So, you know, it was interesting watching that unfold. And if Howie Roseman can't trade you, I got news for you. There was no trade to be made. Mm. Mm. So, you know, there was a lot of that going on. How about, the how about, the, how about the stuff, before we get to Antonio Brown, you wrote some things about the collective bargaining agreement. You wrote yeah. about, what, what do we got, two years until its expiration, yeah. and you you got on the plane going home more optimistic that maybe there was a deal to yeah. be done than you did when you arrived in Indianapolis. I wasn't even really thinking about it going there. Um, I mean, look, it's been a macro-level thing that I've been monitoring for a while because it's it's closer to the end than most people think, and so much has changed about the world we live in since 2011. I mean, you know, in 2011, they weren't streaming NFL games on Twitter and, you know what I mean, on, on, on Google and Amazon and all that stuff. Um, you didn't have Netflix and all these various, um, you know, you, you basically broadcast TV as we know it has changed drastically since then. The league is about to embrace gambling in a way that was unfathomable when they did this last CBA. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of, of, let's face it, it's, it's all about money, right? And there are revenue streams that are going to be available to them now that, that just didn't exist back then. And I, I, so I, I kind of was cognizant of all that, but then, you know, rubbing elbows with some people pretty high up in the league side and, and, and on the union side, I got the sense that both sides think there's a deal to be done here and that while well, they'll, they'll quibble over commissioner powers and they'll quibble over, um, you know, the marijuana policy, that there's already been a lot of wink, wink, nudge, nudge behind the scenes back and forth that has been very positive. And both sides know that um, in order to fully capitalize on, on the, the new broadcast deals and on, you know, the, these avenues with, with gambling revenues, that they need to have their house in order financially. And I expect them to start talking formally about a new CBA um, relatively early in 2019. And people I talk to who don't usually BS me on this stuff really felt like they could, they could get this deal done before the 2020 season even begins. Mm -hmm. And and this Mm -hmm. deal expires after the 2020 season. All right, let's talk about some big names and start right back here at home. Uh, you and I have discussed it a few times, uh, Russell Wilson. Corey was on the last podcast, and we talked about how if Wilson wants to do it, he can go $17 million in 2019, $31 million on the tag in 20, $37 million on the tag in 21. So that's yep. three years, $85 million. That's not chump change. Three years, $85 million going year that's to year. Cousins. That's basically – that's cousins. Right, and then he can just – he can just uh, let the line form for uh, forty, maybe even a thirty-five to forty million dollar year contract. What do you think? Oh, I think by that point it's definitely forty. Look, we, we talked about this a while back, and I'm like, you could make the case if they offered four years, one sixty, to say no to it. Like you could, like because I just talked about them growing the pie. Like, what what is the cap going to be? The cap's on one eighty-eight now, and let's say two years from now. Each team has their own official casino. Each team has yep. their own online gambling portal. Yep. The league has a national sponsorship with Ladbrokes or William Hill yep. for, I don't know, a billion dollars a year. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. They think gambling, the owners, think gambling will be the second biggest revenue stream to the broadcast. Okay? Billions, plural. So what does the pot look like? So, if, you know what I mean? If the pie grows that much, what's the big deal if a quarterback's making 50 million bucks? 
You know, what, if the percentage of the cap is still the same as what a thirty million dollar yeah. contract is right now, so so the, so, the, so, so the big question is how much how, how many how, right, how, how many how, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a tootsie which, roll which tootsie takes pop? me back to me at the end of last season being the only lone wolf saying why is this not a story somebody tell me why this is not a, a story it's a story so what do you think so if you think okay three like, first why of all are they the, not okay, why well, are they not chasing him around well, with they, money they might the way be. the falcons are chasing around matt ryan and the way the packers are chasing around Aaron Rodgers, why, okay. why is that not happening? So let's just assume that he can play three – if his representatives say, okay, Russell, three years, $85 million, and then you're three years older, and we'll get you at the minimum, after Mahomes signs, we'll get you at minimum $40 million a year. If that's the case, what then will it take to put in front of him to turn that, that scenario down and sign right now? For extended amounts of years, I don't know. I I, I, 40, I don't know. Forty five million, forty five million, one hundred and thirty million guaranteed, something like I that. I think now we're now we're having a conversation. I think now we're, we're there, that that's that's good fodder. You know what I mean? There's a back and forth. There's a dialogue. Yeah. Wow. But, wow. I don't see how they could do that. I I don't see. I can't believe that the Seahawks. Would that would be taking the biggest contract of Aaron Rodgers and blowing it out of the water? Not even getting well, close. And, and to I don't it. know how you do that right now, not knowing what those fit, you know what the financials are going to be of the new CBA and what the gross revenues look like. You know what I mean when those new TV contracts kick in. So I, I'm not saying that's what they should do now, but I'm also saying if you're him, why would you do anything less than that? Then there's no deal to be made right now. Either side, there's no there's no incentive because you're saying that the the team, the incentive for the team is the obvious. But if they don't know the numbers and they can't do anything, and if he doesn't get a an unbelievable uh, an unbelievable contract offer, he's not going to do anything. So there's no du- there's no deal here, no deal. I think it's a difficult one to strike. I, I think it's difficult. That's why again I go back to. Why aren't you re-upping with two years left? Because now you got a four-year. Okay, we can franchise you. You got to get through two more years healthy, and then we can right, franchise right, you right. two more years before that. Right. And Rodgers hasn't done his thing yet. You know what I mean? And it was pretty clear Rodgers was going to get thirty-five or thirty-six. So just go get him that now and try to buy a year or two beyond those two franchise years. Right, right, right. You know uh, what I mean? Like yeah. a baseball, like buying a year of arbitration away. Yeah. Um, but I got we'll a I, I got a question. It's a it's a little bit of a tangent, but. When Frank Clark got tagged the other day, um, he wrote a tweet celebrating it and saying, "Hey, God's good, and I can't wait." And Russell Wilson wrote a tweet, "Good, to, good that you got your cash. Good for you, man." Um, and it just it struck me as I read all these things that people are reacting differently to being franchised these days than maybe they did three years ago. It seemed like three or five years ago when you got franchised, it was an insult. And I, it was, I'm not getting my long-term deal. I might hold out if you don't give me the long-term deal. And then more and more, people seem to be appreciative, at least in Frank Clark's case. Hey, I just got a raise from 990000 to a guarantee of 17.1 next year. I'm, I'm going to play for that, and I'm going to be excited if I don't get a long-term contract. I think part of his excitement is they are, they are working on a long-term deal. This isn't we're tagging you for a year and squatting on you because we don't really know what we think of you, you know? 
and we might be able to do better trading you. So we're just going to wait and see what the market looks like, and then we'll see what your value is come July. You know what I mean? This is different. This is you know this wasn't a first round pick. This wasn't a guy. You know what I mean? Who's it's been all glory his entire career, and obviously he came in with the off field stuff, and he's kind of had a fight for it, and he knows they want to keep him around for a long time. Like that's different than D Ford, who's like we're going to tag you, but we probably want to trade you, or like the Texans, like. Yeah, we're going to tag you, Clowney, but we still don't know if you can stay healthy. And, you know, we, we, we might be shipping you somewhere else. Or Demarcus Lawrence, who would have got $50 million guaranteed last year on the open market, and now he's being hit with a second tag. And, you know, so I, I think the different scenarios um, play out differently. But by and large, players don't like it because you're taking away prime years at 25, 26, 27 when they would be getting their first major bite at the apple in a non um, – Everything's been a formula for them, right? They, yeah. they come in, yeah. and you're slotted, and then they pick up your fifth-year option or they don't, and then they could franchise you for two years. And so you don't get to the negotiating table. You never get to fully explore your market value because you're only allowed to talk to one team. Um, and again, the, 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 the tenor of the conversations between him and the, and the Seahawks, I consistently heard were positive, trending in a direction towards okay. long-term okay. security. Okay. That, so that helps. That's not always yeah. the case. Okay. Uh, Jason Lockin for Zeke's Pizza Hotline, cbssports.com. Uh, you wrote a piece about Kyler Murray. The more you hear, the more you talk, the more you think he might be going number one overall. I think it was back on, on Tuesday that Charlie Casterly, the old GM of the Redskins, um, he, I think he's still with the NFL Network. He wrote that he's yes. hearing that Murray isn't easy to coach, and behind the scenes is not is not easy. Um, w- what about those two things? And have you not heard the same things that Car- Castley had heard? And what do you think? Is he going to be the number one overall pick? I don't know that he's the smoothest guy in the world. I don't know that he's um, look the offense that he's been asked to run. You know, it's fairly limited. He's only been a college starter for one year. So I had heard that he was rough being put on the board. The the extremes that Charlie took it to, like I heard he wasn't you know all that polished, but the the sort of the way he couched it and the extremes of like literally I've never seen a top flight quarterback this bad ever. Um, I haven't heard it remotely that okay. um, seriously. Okay. Okay. And the reality is, at this point, he may only have to impress one team, and that team's already in the bag for him. Kingsbury, you know, it, like if they take Kyler Murray first overall, right, then we know that this was a discussion point when they're interviewing Kingsbury, right? I mean, it's what do you think of Rosen? Well, I like him, but I really love Murray. Well, do you think Murray's plug-and-play? You know, like, you don't get to that point if to drafting this kid with knowing all the inside information that Kingsbury has him and they're running his offense. You know what I'm saying? Like, it just doesn't happen unless they already are completely comfortable with him and on board with it, and unless he breaks his neck between now and the draft, we're going to take him. Right. So at the end of the day, I think all this is, is, might just be wasted breath because if, if what the, there's a strong perception in this league now that he's the first overall pick by the Arizona Cardinals, and, and they've been cemented on that, you would have to think, from the moment they signed Kingsbury. So this is all just hot air. Like, it doesn't matter. Three guys, and then you can go. Antonio Brown. You uh, you reported on CBSSports.com, Jason, that uh, it was a little it was a little quiet there for a while, and now it's heating up. Teams are jumping into the fray, and you even reported that the Seahawks may have had some internal conversations about Brown. Yeah, they kicked it around internally, and ultimately decided that it wasn't a guy that they were going to move on right now. 
Um, you know, there's three or four teams that have reached out with some degree of uh, regularity. It hasn't been what, frankly, the Steelers hoped, and a lot of that is due to the sort of ongoing, um, you know, unhinged antics of, of Antonio Brown in front of the camera and on social media that I think has given people a reason to, to talk themselves out of it, frankly, in some teams that, that shouldn't be talking themselves out of it, that, that should look at the production every year. And it's not like this guy wore out his welcome in two years. He's been there a long time. Um, you know, he and Ben have been grading on each other for a while. He's not the only guy at fault in all this. Tomlin um, was way too loosey-goosey and let some of these things get farther than he should have. Uh, but, but, yeah, there's a trade to be made. Who are the three teams? You know, I th- the, the Oakland Raiders would, would prefer to get OBJ, but I could see Gruden not being willing to wait for that and just going ahead and doing it. And he's got, you know, so much draft capital. Um, you know, the Eagles have called a few times and, and basically, you know, let it be known that, um, you know, they want to have something to do with this process uh, whenever, the you know, the Steelers are getting down to the nitty-gritty. You know, Tampa's checked in on him a little bit. I'm not sure they're going to go in that direction because, you know, they've got some pass catchers there. Um, but I expect them to get rid of Deshaun Jackson, and they're going to lose Humphreys, their slot guy. They've got two tight ends, though, and you still have Mike Evans. But, you know, Bruce, you know, B.A. loves to have his toys, so – you know, I wouldn't rule that one out. I mean, the the Jets finally got around to probing a little bit on it. He would make sense for them. You know, I I wouldn't rule that out. And we'll see if if somebody else steps up. But those have been basically the teams for now. I was curious when you attached Le'Veon Bell's name to the Chiefs in a recent column. Uh, yeah, that's uh, you know, I close my eyes and I picture Andy Reid and Pat Mahomes with Le'Veon Bell back there, and I cringe for the rest of the AFC West. How serious do you think that is? Uh, they have been exploring things. They have been making phone calls and, and, and checking in on some of the high-end skill players, which is kind of surprising given what they already have there, you know, given guys who they're going to have to extend, and given the fact they don't have any players on defense and can't stop anybody. But maybe it's you know, the first team to 80 wins. But, yeah, I think if they had their way, they'd be in on the Antonio Brown thing, but the Steelers aren't trading him to a team that they might have to face in the championship oh, yeah. game. It's one thing if you trade him yeah. with the Jets, but you trade him with the Chiefs, he ends your season. Uh, they, they're, not, they're not into that. Jadavion Clowney. I think if somebody gives them, you know, if somebody looks at him as the difference maker on their team, and somebody thinks of him the way uh, the Bears thought of Khalil Mack, then they'll, they'll absolutely trade him. And I, and I don't even think it has to be the two twos. I mean, the two ones, but, you know, a one and something else of real significance. Uh, I think there's a trade to be made there. I, I think, I still think it's more likely Clowney gets traded than D Ford because I, I don't know what they're going to get for D Ford. I, I just think, you know, he was kind of a one-year wonder. He was a bust up until that point. He's still kind of seen a little bit as a tweener. You know, they don't. You know, they kind of backed into the franchise thing. They weren't trying to sign him long term. You know, they're kind of sending signals that we're not exactly sure what he is. But damn, he had a great season. We can't just let him walk. Who else is going to give them anything of significance, you know what I mean, and then give him the monster contract on top of it? I, and you're not, going to, you're not going to give up a first or a second round pick just to rent him for a year. So I, I don't know about that one. But I, 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 I think Clowney, there's a blockbuster to be had there if, if the right teams are interested. Perfect. Great stuff. CBSSports.com. Read them all offseason. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for the little offseason visit. Appreciate it very much. No worries, brother. My pleasure. You know what I learned over the course of the week? I learned that newly franchise-tagged Frank Clark of the Seattle Seahawks could use the services of our newest sponsor and our newest partner, Evergreen Golf Call. 
founded about 30 years ago, homegrown right here, downtown Bellevue, super successful down the West Coast to Portland, San Francisco, and the Napa Valley. And we're not talking about a commission-based firm. It's a group that invests in the very same way as their clients, and they do have athletes managing over $2 billion in assets. Evergreen is a fee-only advisor with no hidden fees and no hidden commissions. Evergreen is legally a fiduciary to their clients. Not all financial advisors can say this, and it means that they have a legal requirement to make financial decisions that put your interests first and philanthropic in the community, to say the least. Evergreen Golf Call, the premier wealth manager in the Northwest. Unfiltered. It's my favorite topic in the world. Episode number 28, Zeke's Pizza Hotline. Let's go down to Orlando, Florida. He's the golf writer for USA Today and Golf Week. And what a writer he is. He follows the PGA Tour week to week. He's uh, he's there at a very chilly Arnold Palmer Classic, right? Very, very cold and windy. Well, I'll tell you, this isn't the happiest place on earth uh, the last two days. I'll give you that. Um, you know, we're in the shadow of Walt Disney Golf, uh, the Walt Disney Resort. And yesterday it was cold. Phil Mickelson said the ball wasn't going anywhere. The 17th hole at Bay Hill, where uh, Arnold Palmer's annual bash is every year, brings in the best players in the world, and this this field is loaded despite Tiger's absence. Phil Mickelson, he teed off at 7.40 in the morning, and Tim Mickelson is his brother. He's on, he's on the bag. And Tim said when they got to the 17th hole, it had warmed up to about 44 degrees. Now, the 17th hole is a downhill par three. Yeah. And it was playing at 197 yards. Yeah. And they were playing it into the wind. It's freezing. Phil Mickelson hit a full bore, two iron, and came up short. (laughs) He carries that two iron, 255. And they came up short. Uh-oh. The very next hole, he had a bad drive on 18. He had to chip out, got it forward a little bit in the fairway. He had 138 yards to the green. The wind's into their face. Phil looks at Tim, and Tim's telling me the story. He looks at Tim and says, I want to hit a six iron. Tim goes, wait, that's way too much. Let's hit seven iron. Yeah. So Phil hit seven iron and came up short. So... For the first three days of uh, Arnold's annual bash here, it, yeah. the weather hasn't been good at all. Steve DeMeglio is the voice. He's a terrific golf writer for USA Today and uh, Golf Week. Steve, you understand that those of us in the north and the northwest and the northeast uh, are are crying a river for all you guys, for all these. It's too bad that Phil Mickelson has to brave the, the, the wind and the cold uh, after he got off of his private jet in Orlando for the Arnold Palmer Golf Classic, you know there's a lot of lot of little violins playing for you as you speak. What What's funny is my brother lives in Chicago, and it got to minus twenty six. It was twenty six below zero, uh, I think on Sunday or Monday, and on that same day it was twenty six degrees in Antarctica. <laughs> That's a 52-degree difference between Antarctica and Chicago. 
My mom sent me a text. Uh, she lives in Minnesota, uh, and it was 18 below zero. I lived through that. I lived in Minnesota for 18 years, 26 years. I, I mean, 18 years. I take that back. Yeah. 18 years. I felt 20, 20 below zero on my face. It's not a good feeling. Uh, but I know, you know, this wind chill is going through, but it's going to pass. We'll be fine. And next week for the Players' Championship, the flagship PGA Tour event, it's going to be fine. All right, Steve. Let's uh, let's hit some topics. Tiger Woods is not there. Uh, he cites a neck problem. It sent uh, shock waves throughout the PGA Tour. I've read your work. I've seen your Twitter, and uh, you say that nobody is freaking out about this. Do we expect him to play in the players? And of course, just around the corner, there's a little a little uh, pitch and putt called the Masters at Augusta National. What do you uh, what do you think Tiger's week to week? I'm sure he's not missing the cold and the wind if he has a sore neck. That's for sure. Well, the thing is, he would have teed off this morning on the first because, like he always says, he would have been first off and it would have been like 35 degrees. So, yeah, he didn't miss that. Um, Zach Johnson, two-time master, you know, two-time major champion, told me that he texted with Tiger and he's just being overly cautious. Um, and at his age, at 43, after four major surgeries to his left knee, four major surgeries to his back, all the other assortment of injuries that he's dealt with, he has finally reached the age of wisdom and how to deal with these injuries. In the past, he would have forced it. A 28-year-old Tiger Woods or a 35-year-old Tiger Woods would have played here this week. And won. <laughs> he might have. You know, he's only won here eight times, but... Um, I, th- I think he's just being overly cautious. We didn't get an indication when we were in Mexico that anything was bothering him on, a, on his neck. We didn't see any of the K tape that he had because Roy McElroy told me that he saw Tiger getting treatment for his neck and back in Mexico two weeks ago, and he was wearing the K tape. We didn't have any indication of that. Tiger didn't let on, but it was bothering him back then. It's bothering him a little bit last week enough said he couldn't play in one of his favorite tournaments, but Zach Johnson would be surprised if Tiger doesn't play next week. Rory would be surprised if he doesn't okay. play next week. Right. Pat Perez, who I talked with at length, who knows Tiger Woods very well from his junior days. They played golf together when they were in their teens. He'd be surprised if Tiger doesn't play next week. One, he loves the golf tournament uh, because it is the PGA tours flagship event. He's won it twice, and he has to play some golf before he goes to Augusta National. My only worry about Augusta National, the Masters, I know it's six weeks away, but this throws his rhythm off. Tiger has always talked about finding a rhythm to the golf calendar, finding the proper cadence that he wants to follow and build upon so he can peak at the four major championships. This throws it into a wrench because now if he plays next week, does he play the following week at the Valspar Championship or does he skip that week, rest the neck a little more, and then play the match play, the WGC match play, Dell Technologies match play in Austin, Texas the following week, and then take a week off and go into Augusta? We have to see. But all I know is right now my concern is his rhythm to the season has been thrown off especially after he played the Genesis Open in L.A., where he played 30 holes on Friday. 
I think, 18 on Saturday, 24 on Sunday. That wasn't good. And then he goes to the high elevation, the thin air of Mexico, 7,800 feet above sea level. And he was struggling with that, so he couldn't really find that proper rhythm that he's always cherished. And now he WDs here at one of his favorite places. So that's my major concern right now. Okay. If he doesn't play next week, then my concern level is going to elevate okay. and we'll go from there. Okay, and of course, he hasn't had the greatest track record despite winning there as an amateur. And then he once he obviously won with the famous shot on 17, better than most. Uh, but overall, he's played better at other places. We'll wait and see whether Tiger Woods, who withdrew this week from the Arnold Palmer event with a bad neck, will play at the Players' Championship. All right, a couple of quick hitters. Give me some some quick thoughts, if you don't mind. Steve DiMeglio, terrific golf writer, going to join us from time to time here on Mitch Unfiltered. Um, with the Golf Week and USA Today, follows the PGA Tour. You can follow him on Twitter and everywhere else. Uh, give me some quick thoughts. Uh, fallout from the Matt Kuchar tipping thing. Is it all gone now? Is it all quiet on the Western Front? Or are we still hearing chirps from fans? We we heard nothing from his peers and from players during the whole controversy. Well, it was funny. In Mexico, we didn't hear a thing. And with the, uh, you know, we were wondering because the caddy that he, you know, had a problem with was of Mexican heritage. We thought now Matt's going to go play in Mexico. Didn't hear anything. You just hear the occasional joke from the the caddies on the on the uh, range and okay. some of the players, but no, I think it's over with. One, uh, because it was Matt Kuchar. Uh, he is a big name, but he's not a super big, big, big name. If Tiger had pulled this, then we'd be still writing about it. If Phil Mickelson had pulled this, we'd still be writing about it. If Rory McIlroy had done this or Ricky Fowler, we'd still be writing about it, but Matt, while he's a popular figure out there, I think that helped to alleviate all the attention. But uh, I'd be shocked if I heard a word of it in the Players' Championship next week. Right. Um, and I you know, I followed Matt in Mexico for 18 holes, nine on one day, nine on the next day. Didn't hear a word. So, yeah, I think it's done with. Lots of rules, lots of bitching and moaning on the new rules. Standing behind the player, the flag being in, dropping the ball from the knee. I even saw the video of you making triple bo bogey on your uh, on your Twitter, Steve. <laughs> nice job. Why is there such uh, bitterness about these rule changes when I thought in the first place the rules changes were a response to what the players wanted? Or is that not correct? Well, I'll tell you one thing. What bothers me is there has been criticism and some of it's valid i don't think most of it is but if you're going to criticize the rule changes at least point out the rules that you like and the players most of them like a lot of the rule changes like tapping down spike marks they love that mm -hmm. um being able to now fix footprints on the greens yeah. they love that right um the yellow stakes and the red stake differentiations they love that yeah this lining up of the caddy thing, I, you know, I think the reason why this is going to die down quickly is because I don't think a whole lot of people are in agreement with the few people that are really, really complaining about him. You know, Justin Thomas went out of his way, and unfortunately, the USGA attacked him, and they have apologized since then. They got their signals mixed up. And they had apologized when Justin said 
when they said that Justin had missed meetings, when he could have voiced his opinion, and that wasn't true. That wasn't a good look. Ricky Fowler taking his, I don't know, goofy drop that uh, to me wasn't a good look. Um, and a couple other players have really gone after him. You know, they had <laughs> the PGA Tour was at the table when these were they were making these changes, uh, when they were talking about these rules changes. The players had a year, 18 months to comment. Everybody's known about the caddy alignment now for what are we in, in, you know, tournament number nine since mm-hmm. the rules mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. taken into effect. Yeah. I'm sorry. It doesn't matter if you're trying to gain an advantage with your caddy behind your player. Like we've seen, those have been the most controversial um occasions with the rules changes you don't have to try to gain an advantage a rule's a rule you know if you accidentally leave a 15th club in the bag you weren't trying to gain an advantage you just made a mistake i'm sorry that's against the rule uh-huh. you get docked um the guy was clearly behind brian mitchell i mean alan uh adam shank in the bunker. He was clearly right behind him in the line of play. You're not supposed to do that. And we're in week eight. You should know these rules. Yeah. Um, I still don't understand why anybody's complaining about the drop rule. I'm sorry. I know I'm short. I'm about five foot five, but I bent over, placed my hand knee level and dropped. Ain't that tough. Right. And I don't know. Understand why you have to curtsy. <laughs> um, you bend over, and these guys are athletes. Bend over and drop. Uh, some I of mean, them are athletes. Some of them. <laughs> I yeah. I, I think this will. Uh, uh, I think this will. This will quickly blow, blow over because it's not a good look for this. Turn, it's not a good look for this sport. Right. Rory McIlroy told us yesterday. He goes, "Hey, the USGA is a favorite punching bag right now." And they have deserved criticism in the past, especially with the setups of the U.S. Open. And they've done some other things that just didn't bode well with a lot of people. But again, these rules have been out there. Learn them. Let me throw a curveball at you that you're not expecting. The voice is Steve DeMeglio. You can read him in the USA Today and Golf Week. Covers the PGA Tour beautifully. And I urge all golf fans to uh, follow him on Twitter as well. I've got a curveball for you that you're not expecting. Those of us up here in the Pacific Northwest are aware that Chambers Bay has new greens, Steve. We've got new greens at Chambers Bay, and everyone wants to know. They're yelling at their podcasts, their radios, to for me to ask you, do you get any kind of a sense whether we'll ever see another major championship at Chambers Bay now that they've blown up the greens and started all over again? You will, but it's going to be a while. Um, The U.S. Open is, I think, all stacked up till 2025, I think 2030. Um, PGA championship is stacked up all the way till that time too. Um, to me, that's just, that wasn't the only problem with Chambers Bay that the players complained about. What shocked me is on that golf course, such a beautiful golf course, you know, vistas that are phenomenal, that water's out there, just beautiful that the fans couldn't go to basically like six of the holes. That's right. You know, 
it was tight for them to get there. So they have to figure out the infrastructure. Because once you left the grounds, man, I, got, I love Seattle. When I was covering Major League Baseball from 2000, 2006, I loved every trip I took to Seattle. That was at the hands of all the media. That was at the hands of all the fans. It's a great place to hold a major championship. If they can figure out the infrastructure a little better, where fans can see a little more of the golf course, and now that the greens are fixed, and, you know, the greens were, and and I'm sorry, Seattle fans, those were probably the worst greens I've ever seen at a major championship. And I was told that by a lot of the players. But if they get those greens right, and they can figure out how we can get more people to more portions of the golf course, you definitely are going to get another major. But I don't think within the next 10 years, because the U.S. Open is basically full, and so is the PGA Championship. But they're not going to abandon the Upper Northwest. They are not going to abandon the Upper Northwest. Good. That's good to hear. Last one for you. I'm going to tell you what I think the best golf story of the last eight or ten days is. You tell me whether you agree. It's something that you didn't cover because you weren't there. I usually detest, Steve, when I see these celebrities or athletes from other sports get invitations to play in professional events. And whether it's Jerry Rice or Tony Romo or whomever it might, Steph Curry, whomever it might be. You want to go to qualifying? You want to go to Monday qualifying? You want to go to U.S. Open qualifying? I got no problem with that. But when you start taking up a spot in a field, I just typically can't stand that because you know what ends up happening. They finish at the very, 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 very bottom of the heap. Well, Mm -hmm. on the Champions Tour this week, and I don't know that a lot of people have been writing about this, Hall of Fame pitcher John Smoltz, Steve, did you see the list of names over three rounds that he beat on the Champions Tour in Tucson? It's quite a who's who of uh, of Champions Tour players. I'll give you some some names and for our listeners who didn't hear this. Uh, he beat Paul Goidos, Lauren Roberts. He beat Steve Flesh, Ross Cochran, Rocco Mediate. He beat Hal Sutton. He beat John Daly. He beat Corey Pavin. He beat two-time U.S. Open champion Retief Goosen. For goodness sakes, that's a hell of a performance by John Smoltz, Steve. We wrote about it at Golf Week. Um, John's got game. Um, And I'll tell you right off the bat, if you ask me who are the top 10 athletes I've ever interviewed, John Smoltz would be one of them. One of the best guys in the world. I know he got a special exemption into a PGA Tour event and missed the cut. But he has tried to qualify for U.S. Opens. He's putting in the work. What shocked me is he got off to, I think he was two under through three holes, and then he got to three under into a par five. Yeah. And he bogeyed a par five on that on the first round. And he talked about it afterwards. This is what's brilliant, is after the round, he talked about how his body changed, and he had never really experienced that. Because the one thing he's always been able to do in golf was hit the driver straight and all of a sudden it wasn't going straight and he had to figure out how to fix this and he fixed it um i don't care if he came close to winning 
he gained some experience. He didn't embarrass himself. He created attention on a tour right now that needs attention. And it was a very good story. And the way he talks after the rounds um, is, I think, brilliant for the viewers. So whether or not how many more he's going to get, I don't know. Is he going to try to earn his way in? I really don't know. We're going into baseball season now, so I don't know how much time he's going to be able to devote to his golf game. But, uh, yeah, that came off the radar. I, I remember turning on the TV, and there's John Smoltz, three under par in the first round. I'm going, ooh, this is good. This is going to be good. So, yeah, and I, and I tell you, John Smoltz will be the first one if he really doesn't think he deserves an exemption, if he thinks he's taken some spot away from some other deserving player, he wouldn't do it. But he wasn't, and he didn't, and he performed admirably. Yep. And hopefully he'll keep going out there, um, and we'll see. It's a little different out there, granted, than what Tony Romo's going to face when he gets his sponsor's exemption and he plays on the PGA Tour. I'm thinking about, I, I can't remember when it is, it's coming up. That's going to be a little different because, you know, there's a big difference between um, what's going to happen with Tony Romo on the PGA Tour and John Smoltz on the Champions Tour. But, you know, Tony's tried to, he's tried to qualify for U.S. Opens. Um, he's tried to earn it. Um, and I think he's going to continue to try to earn it. But look at, I, I am not one of those people that thinks it's a travesty that he, these guys are getting their exemptions. I'm sorry. Every tournament has exemptions to give. And they want to create interest, which creates dollars, which creates more money to charity, which creates more buzz. If you can get Tony Roman in a golf tournament that's going to be lacking in big-name stars, they're not going to be, there's not going to be a whole lot of them. If you can get a Tony Romo in there and get attention in there, and all of a sudden you're on the NFL Network because it's Tony Romo, all of a sudden you're on ESPN because it's Tony Romo, Yeah, that's better. So um, there's plenty of playing opportunities for the professionals. Um, and I'll go back to the old adage that Tiger was always said, when people complain there weren't enough playing opportunities, play better, you know. Just, I'm sorry. Just play better, Steve. So, Steve. Yeah. Ten seconds. Yeah. Ten seconds. Okay. If, if they, if they blew up the Tiger versus Phil thing in November, on Thanksgiving, and they had it, Tony Romo versus John Smoltz. Who would you pick? Tony Romo. Really? He's longer. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Steve, it is such a pleasure to visit with you again. You were so good to us on the radio for all of those years. Uh, here in Seattle. I can't wait to visit with you again. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to the meat of the golf season. We're going to get to the Players' Championship next week. We're going to get to Masters time right around the corner. Thanks so very much for being a part of Mitch Unfiltered. Absolutely, Mitch. Anytime. I'm here for you. So you're home on Wednesday night watching the Washington Huskies play an overtime thriller with the Oregon State Beavers, and you're looking for something to eat. You're craving some great Northwest-style pizza some craft beer or cider. Well, you blew it if you didn't order from Zeke's Pizza, and I'm assuming you didn't. No third-party deliverer here. It's Zeke's who comes right to your door with anything you want, including beer and cider. 
Zeke'sPizza.com is the place to order or download the Zeke's Pizza mobile app. I think the 16 locations of Zeke's are perfect to watch a game and enjoy a great meal if you want to get out of the house. I loved watching the Super Bowl in Capitol Hill, and I've already made plans to watch NCAA tournament action, including Washington, at the Zeke's in Tacoma on the UW Tacoma campus at 1702 Pacific Avenue. And by the way, Zeke's Pizza is also the perfect spot to take your youth teams after a game or practice to hang out, have lunch or dinner. I've done it a ton of times with my kids' teams. Zeke's Pizza, homegrown in the Northwest. Unfiltered. Brian O'Neill writes, are you going to do any live podcasts, Jason Hamilton? And is that even a thing? I don't know. I'll, you're my technological a live, expert. A live podcast? Uh, that'd be no. No. Okay. No. I mean, we could we could do like a Facebook Live. We could do something that would be, you know, Periscope, Facebook Live, something live-ish, but no. Okay. David B. writes, how about a piece on Heck Ed? Do you like it? Is it one of the better basketball arenas? 10,000 size court, 10,000 people size courts are few and far between. Your opinion. Well, you played there and you broadcast there, so go ahead. I will tell you that Heckhead, out of the arenas in the Pac-12, is one of the best in the league, in part because, A, the lighting is good, the sight lines are good, um, and there's not, a, there's not a bad seat in the house. And I think when that place is rocking, when, when it's full – um, there's a great energy there. I, I, I think uh, there's bigger arenas, certainly Matthew Knight in Oregon and, and down in Tucson at McHale Center, um, even even Wells Fargo and in, in Tempe and and the Huntsman Center in, in Utah. But I don't know that they they have the charm and they have the college atmosphere and they have the the same thing that that Heck Ed that Alaska Airlines Arena actually has. So I'm a big fan, not because it's the place that I played and it's my, it, you know, it's my alma mater. I just think that, you know, if you're a visiting team who had never been to Washington before and you walk in to do a shoot around the first time you get in there, it's a cool, it's a cool building. It really is. And so, you know, people, people might just be desensitized to it because it's, it's, it's their home arena and they don't really haven't been around the country, but it's a, it's a good spot. Tyler Heaton tweets, love the golf talk on episode 27. Would like to know your and Jason's favorite public course in Washington other than Chambers Bay. Are you going to go? You go first. I need a, a moment. Okay. You go. I would say I really like, and I haven't played there in a long time, so I'm going to reserve the right to change my mind the next time I play if I don't like it as much. But I like the Olympic course at Gold Mountain. Yeah, it's good. been many, many years since I've played there, but I always thought that was a great, great track, and when they get it up running in beautiful condition like they did for some of the amateur events that have played there, uh, I really think that's a great, great golf course. So that would be my choice. Yeah, I think that, I mean, you can't go wrong with that. I mean, that's what they hold events there for a reason. I, I would throw a couple of others out there. I think the home course is actually pretty fun in DuPont. I think uh, Gamble Sands for just a fun round is is great. Um, and I, I, I got to concur with you. I mean, if I was to pick a, another public, it would probably be uh, beyond Chambers. It would probably See, be Gold Mountain. Yeah, I haven't played Gamble Sands. 
or anything oh. east. I've not played anything east. I've not played. Oh God, I've never played anything east of Snoqualmie Ridge. That's about as east as I've gone. Not you haven't played anything at Suncadia, Tumble Creek, or any of the two publics there. Never been there. Never been to Suncadia. Oh. Yeah. Listen, I, I need I need you to quit being so sheltered. I'm not. I just uh, you know I I've never I mean been it's, there. it's like an hour away. You've never been an hour away. Oh, I've been mu- much more than an hour away. I've just never That's been to Suncadia. I've never been to Suncadia. Just go. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, Rated G wants to know, uh, Jason, who's the UW MVP this season? Ooh. That's uh, you know what I mean. It's been a different. It's been a different guy for sections of the season. Um, you know, it was early. It was it was Jalen, and then it was Noah, and then it was Matisse, and then the Pac-12 for a lot of games. It's been David. Um, you know, but I, I think between Jalen and 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 Matisse, I probably would say it's Jalen. But I couldn't argue if people thought it was Matisse. But you would vote for Jalen. I would vote for Jalen only because Matisse is one portion of a defense in which he totally dominates. But in, in, in other ways, I don't know if you win certain games without Jalen. I just don't know that you, you know, so it's like, yeah, you got to be able to win the games at the end and you got to have somebody that can close for you. And he's the guy that does that. So it's, it's a, it's a slim, slim nod, I think, but, Certainly, um, I actually think Matisse is going to win it. I think Matisse will be the defensive player of the year in the Pac-12 and the MVP. Um, but I, I think I, I would choose Jalen. Ryan Larson wants to know, have you ever had jury duty? Never sat, but certainly been called. Okay, I'm going to add that to the list. Not going to tell you about it on this episode, but I did in Seattle. Thought I would never get called, and I did, and I had a funny, funny experience that I'll share mm-hmm. at another time. And finally, Basildino writes, did you see the Fred Couples interviews on the Faraday show? I did not. Okay. He did two shows. Freddie did two shows with David Faraday that aired in the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. I think you're going to want to watch them. And then we'll, okay. talk, we'll talk about them after. And finally, okay. finally for episode 28, episode Marshall. So I came in 1995. I signed on my first midday show at KJR in 1995. Where were you in 1995, January? I was playing basketball at the University of Washington. <laughs> Okay, what happened in April of 1995 in the NCAA Final Four? UCLA, they won the national championship. Where? Here in Seattle. I was here for four months. I was represented by a little lady in Washington, D.C. who helped get me the KJR job. She was a little lady named Ellen Beckwith, a lovely lady and a great, I thought a great agent, um, who represented me for several years. And she also represented a lot of talent at ESPN. One of the people that she represented was none other than Jamie Moyer's, I guess, ex-father-in-law. I didn't know that he was divorced. Digger Phelps, the former head coach of the mighty Fighting Irish, Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Ellen Beckwith, God lover, decided, hey, every, all my, a lot of my clients, John Saunders, remember the late John Saunders of ESPN? Yeah. sure. A lot of my clients are going to be in Seattle for the Final Four. I'm going to throw a little dinner and invite everybody. And we squeezed into a, I think the name of the restaurant, I don't know if you remember this, was called, I think it was called the Queen City Grill. Yeah, in Queen Belltown. City Grill, sure. Oh, you do know it. Okay, good. Yeah. 
I don't know if you can picture it. They had these booths on the side of the restaurant that had like colorful stained glass windows to the outside. We were just, just squeezing into a booth like for four. There were six of us. Little Ellen Beckwith, she was up against the window, and there were three on each side. Actually, two and three. John Saunders was in the booth, and I was in the booth, and somebody else was in the booth, and then her client, Digger Phelps, came in late and sat down in the booth. Mm -hmm. Digger had had a couple of pops. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. Somewhere else. This was the... Sunday night in between the Saturday and Monday sessions. Didn't Brian Big Country Reeves shatter a backboard in uh, in the warm-ups? Have. I think in the he practice might, sessions. Yeah. yeah. So you can picture this little booth with six people, and Digger Phelps sits down on the end, and I'm stuck in the middle on the other side. And my former peer advisor from Syracuse University comes over named Mike Tarico. Mm-hmm. And he leans over and says, Hey, Mitch, you still busting on Jim Beheim?" This is 1995. <laughs> and I looked at him, not realizing that anybody else was paying attention because they were all kind of talking amongst themselves. And I said, of course I am. Overrated. Just like that. Of course yeah. I am. Overrated. And what proceeded to happen will go down in Queen City Grill and NCAA <laughs> tournament lore. Okay. Because the uh, not terribly sober... Digger Phelps heard me say what I said to Mike Tirico, and I had forgotten mm-hmm. that he was a dear friend of Jim Beheim. Mm-hmm. And he cursed me out. He started screaming at me. Who the F, who are you? Who, who is this person, Ellen? And she starts, she doesn't know what to do. Who is this person? And he starts pounding his hand on the, on the table. Who the hell do you think you are making fun of Jim Beha? Who do you think? You, how many games have you won? How many games have you won? Answer me. Oh. He starts screaming at me. I'm in the middle of the other booth. I can't get out. He's on the end and he is screaming at me. He then gets up out of the chair and he comes over to our side and he's like pointing his finger in my face. And I can remember a little slobber came across. <laughs> because Jim Beheim, that's another story, also slobbered on me once, screaming at me. Um, uh-huh. And he starts screaming, Who? I want to know. You answer me. You answer me, you punk. How many games have you won as a college basketball coach? And I said, Digger, relax. I've won none. That's right. That you you don't have any basis to to. I said, wait a second. Do I have to have co- I have to have coached on the NCAA level to be able to have an opinion? That's right. That's exactly right. And I remember saying to him, "Have you ever had an opinion on a movie? On a movie?" He says, "What are you talking about?" I said, "How many movies have you produced? How many movies have you directed?" And he he takes his hand and he slams the table, and he says, "I am going to throw you out that window right now." <laughs> And at this point, John Saunders is like, settle down, Digger, settle down. He doesn't know any better. Settle down. Ellen, I think, has pooped her pants. Right. These are two of her clients. I'm one. Digger's another. And he said, I'm out of here, Ellen. I am out of here because if I stay one second longer, I'm going to pick that dude up and throw him right through that stained glass window. 
I will throw him right out that window. And he storms out, storms out of there. So basically what you're saying is <laughs> you've been making friends and influencing people your whole life. I guess so. All because of a comment that took like a half a second to deliver to Mike Tirico when I thought no one else was listening that just happened to catch the ear of Digger Phelps. And, Ellen, and, and, and the aftermath of that is even for another episode. Ellen calling me, you've got to call Digger and apologize, please. Oh, you got to just keep going. Go for a little bit longer on that deal. So did you call him? Um, I remember I did, and I didn't want to. I really didn't want to. I did, and I left some sort of a message, and um, I'd never spoken to him again. Oh, oh, yes, there's a great capper. There is a great PS to this story. So, and I know that you've spent enough time with us, so I'll get you off the phone after this. I go to the Big East tournament and then the NCAA tournament in 1996, the following year, as I did for 25 straight years with my father. That was the year that John Wallace guided a, a, a really mediocre Syracuse team to the Final Four in the Meadowlands in East Rutherford, New Jersey. And we talked about that the other night mm-hmm. um, to, to face Kentucky in the championship game. It was a Cinderella-Syracuse season. This is a true story. And so when I'm flying back from the Elite Eight, they have just beaten Kansas to go to the Final Four. Do you remember when Al McGuire did the dance, the cues is in the house, the cues? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that night. That was that night, that day. I fly back late at night, and I'm driving back from the airport, SeaTac, to my home, the 96. And I turn on KJR, and we have syndicated ESPN programming at the time. I kid you not, as I'm leaving the garage at SeaTac Airport, Digger Phelps is on an ESPN overnight show. And the first thing I hear him say is, you know what about, let me tell you about Syracuse. Let me tell you about Jim Beheim and what the crap that he has to deal with. I was in Seattle, Washington <laughs> just a year ago. Just a year ago. And some doofus Syracuse grad is at my table bagging on Jim Beheim, calling him overrated. I wonder what that guy's doing right now. I wonder what that Syracuse grad is doing right now. Now that he's taken this team to the Final Four, I am sitting in my driving in my car at at four oh five at five, listening to this comment, to this whole thing go by. It was unbelievable. It was so surreal that I was and I was looking around in my car like, who is listening? This is unbelievable. The timing of this that he's going off on me on a national show on my station now a year later is unbelievable. You had to be cracking up, though. I was. I thought it was the funniest thing. I was so excited because I was getting back from the Elite Eight knowing that I I wasn't allowed to go to the final semifinal game because of of John Dracer and the Sonics. But I was going back to East Rutherford, New Jersey, and Digger was hammering me for making the comment a year early. That's That's the P.S. to the story. Too good. There it is. That's too good. Great story. And kudos to John Bracken for for the push. I will push to get you to tell that one. I will throw your ass right out. That stained glass. (laughs) All right. Do this. Do me a favor. Say episode 28, Marshall, Marshall, Marshall is in the books. Episode 28, Marshall, Marshall, Marshall is in the book.